Okay, so after having spent a lot of time dealing with Rosh Hashanah, I realized that we have today's class, we have tomorrow's class, next week, we have no classes. You have classes, I have classes, but we don't have any classes together. Um, and the week after, we have one class. Wow. So that means you have to get through the rest of Tishrei in three classes. So the schedule is like this. Today we're going to do the 10 days of tshuva, all 10 days in one day. If we don't finish, what's going to happen? <laughs> it will forever remain a mystery. Okay. Tomorrow we're going to do Yom Kippur. And after Shoshana, we will talk about Sukkot. Is that okay? Is that up for that plan? Mm-hmm. It's good, because if you, were, if you were not okay with it, there was going to become a power contest, and since I'm the teacher, I would win, and that just created a lot of tension, unnecessarily so. All right. <clears throat> so I'm going to start with a teaching of the Arizal. The Arizal said that anyone who does not cry during the 10 days of Tshuva, for those of you who don't know, the 10 days of Tshuva start on Rosh Hashanah and conclude Yom Kippur, 10 days. If you do not cry, he says, during the 10 days of Tshuva, then your soul is defective. Good? Now, I am not going to now talk about whether or not you should actually attempt to make yourself cry and what the application of that teaching is to us who may have not cried previous years during the 10 days of Tshuva. I don't know. Did you? It's too personal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about the, this conceptually first, and then maybe at the end of the class we'll make it a little more practical. Why should you cry during the 10 days of Tshuva? Like, what's the defect in your soul that's indicated by lack of crime. Anyone want to volunteer a guess? You're showing how much this means to you. How much what means to you? How much your sin and how much you want to repent of your sin. <clears throat> so, if, so what you're saying is like this. There's 52 weeks a year, right? Yeah. So for 51 and a half weeks, if you're okay with sinning and that doesn't bring you to tears, that's cool. But there's one, 10 days, a week and a half, where then it has to really bother you. Does that make a lot of sense? No. No, okay. Like, if sin should bother you, then it should bother you all the time. And if it shouldn't bother you, well, then it shouldn't bother you. Like, oh, now sinning is supposed to bother you. Why? It's like, you know, the guy who... uh, gets caught shoplifting as they put him in handcuffs. He starts crying and they and they and he says, I'm so I'm so I feel so so bad. And the police officer says, Yeah, I know why you feel bad. And the guy says, Why? He says, Because I, I, I did something wrong. He says, that's why you feel bad. You feel bad that I caught you. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> but like you just should feel bad about doing the wrong thing, but then you should feel bad all the time, right? And to the degree that feeling bad about doing the wrong thing is a good thing to do, which we could debate that. But if it is, if it's wrong, it's wrong, you should then why the ten days of Shuva? Okay, so let's, let's think about what are, what are some of the situations in which people cry? I mean, there's, you know, when something hurts physically very intensely, right? That can cause a person to cry. Out of um, happiness. You can cry out of happiness, right? Something wonderful is happening. Yeah. The sense of, like, awe and just kind of... Yeah, a sense of awe. A sense of loss, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of different kinds of crying, right? Right? One could be, like, you know, a, a, one could feel... Um, me, you know, depressed and just crying uncontrollably, that happens. 
There are a lot of different kinds of crying. So I think it kind of behooves us to figure out what kind of crying the Arizal had in mind, right? Does he actually, he could not mean physical. No, I mean just no, psychological. I mean, the tears can come out of your eyes for any number of reasons, right? You could be you encounter this amazing, wonderful thing and you're crying. It could be that you're marrying off a child and you're crying. It could be that you're clinically depressed and you're crying. Right? It could be that you realize you lost your wallet and you, you know, now have to, you're overwhelmed with the thought of like having to deal with all of the consequences of that and you're crying, right? You know, it could be you haven't had enough sleep, right? And um, just someone tells you one more responsibility you have in your birth. There's a lot of ways of people crying, right? I mean, there could be dust in your eyes for all Maybe that's what the Arizal means, that you spray some dust in your Okay, so there is a kind of crying that is very, the Arizal means very specifically, which is, which is the following kind of crying. It's the crying that comes from pain that is being comforted. So let's say, for instance, someone is in pain. Let's say it's a example, a small child. A small child, they had a really bad day at school, they were bullied, they were picked on, it, you know, mm-hmm. and they have all that pain inside, right? They come home, right? And the parent sits them down on the couch and gives them a warm, genuine hug. What happens? The kid starts crying. Mm-hmm. Why are they crying? Well, you can't say it's the pain per se, because it was the pain per se, the pain was there hours ago, right? The safety of the vulnerability. Right, in other words, the hug is somehow making it possible for them to... Um, let that out for them to out for what's locked inside to be experienced right mm-hmm. so you can't say that they're crying the hug is the, the crying is because of the hug right the crying is not because of the pain it's the comforting of the hug as it interacts with the pain the effect on the person that brings the person to tears that's a very specific kind of crying okay now should you feel bad about your sins yeah debatable yeah. Here's the rule. I'll tell you. This is very important. Should you feel bad about your sins? The question is, what does that lead to? That, that, that's a false dichotomy. There's a lot. You feel, yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, person says, well, should you go into business with this person? He says, no. Well, don't have to kill the man. There's more than two options here. Not murder the guy or become his business partner, right? Okay. Um, what's the limit test you should use about feeling bad about what you've done wrong? If you do better after. Yeah, if it actually leads you to do better, then fine. If it doesn't? If you do yeah. Well, then no, you just allow them to just be. What? I, I didn't hear what you said. I said you just allow them to just be. Well, you have to do whatever it takes I mean, to make you not do the sin anymore. Yeah, the most so. important thing is not sitting, right? If feeling bad is going to make you, is not going to help you stop sitting, in fact, it makes you more have a higher propensity to then create a vicious cycle of sinning and feeling bad, um, self-loathing, self-comfort leading to more sin and then repeating. Um, I don't think that's a constructive way of stopping to sin, right? And if the sinning is so bad, okay. So the question is about whether you should feel bad about your sin is not a question of ethics, it's a pragmatic question, okay? But there's no difference between the 10 days of Truva and the rest of the year. Like, if it's effective, it's effective. It's not effective, it's not effective. And we could have a class, which we're not going to have, about the proper way in which to feel bad about sins that is actually constructive. What's special during the 10 days of Truva is there's, on the one hand, there's the things that cause the soul pain. And then there's also what's happening in 10 days of Truva. So go back to my analogy. What's in the tears, what's... There's two elements there, right? The child comes home, 
They had a hard day with a hug. Okay, well, when does Hashem give us this hug? All the time? No. Rosh Hashanah? Well, it starts in Rosh Hashanah and continues until Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. The 10 days of tshuva, Hashem, as our sages say, Hashem is making himself more available, which I'll talk in a second what that means. The result of that is, is that the entire way we experience the pain of separation from Hashem is supposed to be different. In other words, when you go through pain on your own, you go through it in one way. When you go through pain being comforted by someone else, you go through it differently, right? And one of the first things that happens is that when there is someone there for you in your pain, right, as an example of a hug, right, is that that first kind of experiencing the pain and letting the pain out and then you know, eventually coming to deal with it is tears, it's crying. So now, the idea being is, well now, if we were to go back to analogy, right, if you have a kid, and the kid has a really bad day, they get bullied, they get picked on, they're like, well, they come home, the parent sees it, the parent sits down on the couch, gives them a warm and affectionate hug, really is there for them, and the child remains impassive and unmoved. Mm-hmm. What does that indicate? There's like a, a more serious problem going on, right? Yeah. So there is, all says, if Hashem comes and he makes himself available to you, he's there and he's present with you to help you put the pain in perspective, which we'll talk about what that means, and you remain impassive and unmoved, then what does that say about your connection with Hashem? It's defective. It's really defective. Okay? In other words, that kind of closeness that Hashem offers us during the 10 days of tshuva should move us. And if it doesn't, there's a problem, okay? Now, what that means is that we have to think of the 10 days of truth as a time where we're in very close proximity to Hashem. Now, some people have a problem with this because they think Hashem is everywhere and He's always close to you all the time. Um, and no, it's not really true in a real way. Mm. I'll just explain to you. Um, I, I said yesterday the story of my children having a, a bit of a spat in Shul and Shabbos. So how close were they to each other? So my... my um, my eight-year-old, my eight he was sitting right here. And my 11-year-old was standing right here, standing over him, glaring at him. And the eight-year-old is like glaring at the book as if I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm not looking at you. And this is going on for like, you know, 45 minutes. Wow. So how close were they? Emotionally not close. Right, and there's a physical proximity, right? But in terms of, right, in terms of as, as a person, they are about as distant as you could possibly be. Especially for that age. Yeah. And this is obviously really just certain weeks. <laughs> right next to the field. Okay. So, on the other hand, right, when someone gives someone a warm hug, right, that is, that is genuine and heartfelt, right, they're extremely close to that person, right? In other words, closeness has a lot to do with how you relate to someone, not whether you are physically next to them or not. Okay? So, if God exists in every place, but God is aloof and withdrawn from the person, then is God really close to you? By the way, you could even be involved actively doing something and also be distant. Um, For instance, what if you're doing something that's really important but you despise? You're doing it, but are you really there? You're withdrawing, you're mentally somewhere else. So, on the 10 days of Shuvah, where is Hashem? Right next to us. Right next to us. In what kind of way being next to us? 
a warm embrace. Right? Now, as a side point, a little detour. Okay? Um, is it like a really bad thing to roll your eyes? It's not very respectful. It's true, it's not very respectful. Is, is it such a big deal? I don't care about it really depends, right? That thing depends, right? So let's say um, you're having a conversation with someone, and that person is really attentive to you. They're really present. They're really engaged with you, right? Um, and you start rolling your eyes. Yeah. That'd be very offensive, right? Yeah. So. How should we conduct ourselves? We're, go, we're going to go back to the 10 days of Shuvah and the crying. Just on a very practical, how should we conduct ourselves during the 10 days of Shuvah? If Hashem is that present with us, how should we conduct ourselves? Intentional. Right, very intentional. Which is why the Code of Jewish Law says something very interesting, that one should be more religiously observant during the 10 days of Shuvah. And they shouldn't view that as hypocrisy. Mm. No, it's something that I'm not careful with this particular thing. Not not because it, not that I'm sinning, but like there's different. Everyone knows that in halacha there's like different levels, different opinions about things. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for instance, like I'm not I'm not careful with um, eating only chol v'sral, for example. Say I'm like, so I'm gonna, like ten days of true. I'm just gonna, I'm, I should just like pretend. I'm not intending on taking that on. I'm not intending on changing my lifestyle. Um, and it says in the code of Jewish law that one should endeavor to adopt more stringent opinions during the 10 days of tshuva because it's not a reflection of how pious you are as a person. It's, uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's acknowledging and being sensitive to the closeness of Hashem at that moment. Right? There's nothing, my wife has no objection if I roll my eyes in principle. She just has an objection if I roll my eyes when she's talking to me, mm-hmm. right? Like, I can roll my eyes what other people say, unless, like, especially if she, what she thinks, right? She doesn't even mind that I have biting sarcasm, as long as it's not directed at her, right? Now, there are things that she thinks are, like, deep character flaws, but that's none of your business. Um, so, there's an idea during the 10 days of Shuvah that one should endeavor to be more scrupulous in the observance of mitzvahs and even take on stringencies, not as a reflection of personal piety and where you're holding, but as a reflection of how how close Hashem has come to you. Mm. Right? And in a way that, you know, if, if you want to use a different example, right, in a way that if you are in an important meeting, right, you would conduct yourself differently than if you're mm-hmm. casually around friends. It doesn't mean that you would become a stiff, formal person. It's not the same idea, but there's that idea. So what's important to understand of truth is a time where Hashem is relating to us in a much more um, positive and from his point of view, it's self-initiated. He's coming to us. Okay? Um, but he's coming to us with all of the full grandeur of being God, not like we had the king in the field kind of thing. He's like, I'm God, and I'm here for you, which is a bit intense. But that's what the 10 days of Shuvah are. Mm-hmm. And they start when? Rosh Hashanah. Specifically, when in Rosh Hashanah? Mystically, if we're talking about this idea, like when, when would it make sense that they start having learned some stuff about Rosh Hashanah? After the chauffeur. The idea of really 10 days of chauffeur really kicks in after the chauffeur is blown. Okay. When you're talking about on a spiritual level. And that continues up through Yom Kippur. So now, if Hashem is coming, he's like, I am God and I am there for you. And like that doesn't move your soul to like let the pain out, whatever the pain is we'll get to. There's something really wrong with the soul. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So, did you cry last uh, 10 days of Shuvah? Mm -hmm. Does that mean there's something really wrong with your soul? According to the Arizal. No, 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 no. See, there's a problem with reading statements of the Arizal. This is very important. The Arizal genuinely takes for granted, as most Kabbalists do, that the person is an embodiment of their soul. In other words, there's your soul's relationship with God, and then there's your relationship with your soul. So could it be your soul is crying and you're not mm -hmm. crying? Wow. But, but us non-Sadiqim, we have this issue, is that there is a, often a disconnect between where our soul is holding and where we are holding. So, the, so I can't look at myself, I didn't cry, so there's something wrong with me. But I have to right? If I was a tzaddik and I didn't cry, there'd be something wrong with me because a tzaddik is a person whose physical life is an embodiment of their soul. Now, the, is there a problem with my soul? I mean, maybe, I don't know. Right? But I'd have to see, is my soul crying, right? How would one know if your soul is crying? We, what we do is we have a general rule in Judaism, which is we presume all Jews are kosher. You know what kosher means? What does kosher mean? It's a word. It's a word. Yeah. The word in Hebrew. We use it to mean like you can eat food. Kosher means, um, it no, means as it, it means acceptable. Yeah. Right? It means as it should. So, so the exact meaning will change in context, right? So I'm talking about food in the context of am I allowed to eat it? So if it meets the slach sense, we call it kosher, right? I'm talking. Can I use a sefer Torah? Um, in the context of, of of witnesses, right? It means it, is the person vowed to testify? But the deeper idea then is that, in the absence of any knowledge to the contrary, what should I assume about my soul? That it's that defective that it doesn't cry, or I should assume that it's perfectly fine. Good. Now, it may be wrong, right? But we have a presumption of kashrus. That's that's a very important thing. And just in general, in Judaism, um, you know, we don't go looking for problems. We assume things are good until proven otherwise. Okay, so our lack of crying is a reflection of the defect in our soul, or is a, la or is a reflection of our disconnect from our soul? A disconnect from our soul. Okay. Okay, so now let's talk about the pain. Why is the soul in pain? Right, so the idea is that Hashem comes to the soul, and when Hashem comes to the soul, the soul is able to really feel the pain, and that is a that that that, that brings healing. Right? We psychologically have that dynamic. That also happens from God in the soul. Why is the soul in pain? Golas. Golas, that is the correct answer. But can we say Gullis in English first? Exile. Exile, okay. What is exile? Opposite of redemption. Opposite of redemption. It's funny you say that. You know why it's funny you say that? There was a great rabbi named the Maharal of Prague. By the way, if you ever become a great rabbi, um, you don't, you, no one ever remembers your name, that's the way it works. You either become known by the name of a book, an acronym, or the city you're from, or some combination thereof. Has anyone heard of the Maharal? Mm -hmm. Okay, what was his name? Yehuda Lowy something? Yehuda Lowy something. <laughs> <laughs> From Prague. From Prague, right? <laughs> okay. Alright. So, um, so, he, he has a, a work where he discusses the idea of redemption of Gula, and he says, well, in order to understand redemption, you first have to understand what exile is. Because only from understanding exile can understand redemption, and I... I Okay. Um,
exile fundamentally is that you are in a place that you don't belong. Now that, that, that there's two very key elements to this. One is you are in a place and the other is you don't belong there. Okay. So first off, if you are standing on the street, is that exile? Why not? Which, which criteria does it fail to meet? You're standing on the street. You don't, don't belong there. No, no, no. You don't belong in the street, that's correct. You do not belong in the street. That, it, it meets criteria of not belonging. You do not belong on the street. Well, it's easy to get out of it. That was not one of the criteria. Why don't you belong in the street? I'll get to that soon. What were the criteria? Yeah. The two criteria are that you're in a place, you're in a place that you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're standing on the street, you are in the street. So you don't belong. Like physically in the middle of the street? Doesn't matter. <laughs> if, you're, if you're standing in the street, that's not called exile. Not because you belong in the street. You don't belong in the street. This, by the way, is a binary. You either belong there or you don't. You don't belong in the street. So why are you not in exile? Wait, what were the two criteria? You're in a place that you don't belong. Do you belong in the street? What? You're not really in the place. What, is, what does it mean that you're in the street? You're standing in the street corner. You're not in a place. Not if you're not there. Right. You're not. You're between this place and that place. You're going, right? If you're in the grocery store, are you in the grocery store? Yeah. No. You're doing something there. See, this is that, the, 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 the idea of being in a place, this is very important. The idea of being in a place means that you and the place have kind of merged. I'll give you an example, okay? Um, you guys, a few weeks ago, were not here, right? Mm-hmm. Where? In Yerushalayim, yes? Most of you? Yeah. Okay. And a lot of you are staying in an apartment somewhere altogether. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you got there to that apartment, you had some luggage and stuff. What did you do? I'm getting. What? You brought in the luggage and then what? Unpacked. And then unpacked. And it was unpacking merely a pragmatic thing. You're just like, okay, I need to have access to my stuff. So you like pile the stuff up so you have access to it and that's it? Or do you, is there any other elements to unpacking? So you want to feel like you. You want to feel what? You're settled. Like you're settled. Like it's your place. <laughs> in other words, you wanted to create some kind of an attachment to the place so that it would feel like this is, I'm in the place, but it also feels like I belong in the place. Because what does it feel like to be in a place that you don't belong in? Yeah, it doesn't. And by the way, most of the places that we, are, <laughs> that we physically occupy, we're either passing through. Or we're not in the place, we're doing something that just requires it. For instance, right now, it's not really correct to say I'm in this room, in, in this deep sense that I'm talking about. I'm doing an activity. What's the activity? Teaching. Teaching. What are you doing? Learning. Learning. Now, the only way that happens is you have to meet up somewhere, right? But it's not about the place, right? In other words, it, it happens to work. It's, yeah. So right. you can't really say you're anywhere? So what are places you could say where are you, where you are? Your house. Your home, right? Would be a place, right? But your home is not a place of exile. Well, it depends, right? When when you're when you're when you're when you're a child, um, and I would say depending on the exact structure of exactly how this works, up it up to and possibly including undergraduate school, your school also takes as a place where you are. Because it's it's not just that you there and do stuff. There's like that's where you. That's where you hang out. That's where you come back to in a certain kind of a sense. And by the way, some people feel like school is exile. 
because it's not like it's not just like they go there, they learn stuff, and they leave. It's like school is a place where you're supposed to be, and yet when they're in school, they feel like they're not supposed to be. They're not supposed to be like like I like I'm like the whole school expects me to like just be part of everything and be and feel like I belong, but I don't feel like I belong. I feel alienated, right? Mm-hmm. That would be like a feeling of exile. When you go to the grocery store, you're like, I'm here to get groceries and I'm out. Like, I, I have no connection with the place. I come here, I'm here to teach you and I'm out, right? So there's this way where you develop an attachment to your surroundings. Then the question is that because you and the surroundings fit together, you belong there? Or the, or the surroundings trying to grab hold of you and you're like, <laughs> but you can't escape it. If you, you know, when, when, the Jewish, when, the, when the Jewish people went, went into exile, what did that mean? Where do they belong? Not there. They belong in Israel. And then what happens? If someone goes out of Israel in business, he's in exile? Mm-hmm. No. But when the Babylonians came and took the Jews and said, okay, hey, hey, you have to live in Babylonia. You have to be part of the Babylonian society. That's where you are supposed to be now. You don't have, you can't go back to the land of Israel and live in the society of the kingdom of God. But yet, I still feel like that's where I belong. What, what kind of state is that? That's a state of exile. Does this make sense? It's very, like, not every time you're somewhere else are you really in the place. You're very often, have no connection to the place. So, By the way, there are people that are in the street. What would be an example of a person who's in the street in exile? Homeless people. God forbid, a person is homeless, right? What does that mean? They have nowhere to go back to. Like, this is where they are. This is like, this is where they retreat to, and yet they clearly don't belong there because a person, a person belongs in a private dwelling, a place, of, a, 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 a place that's, that, that's their personal space, that's recognized by society as that's where a person belongs. So that would be a state of exile. Right? What about a person in a family where the family doesn't want them? That would feel like exile. You, you getting a sense of what I'm talking about? So, so when you say exile, like for Pesach, when they were exiled from Egypt, but they don't—they didn't technically belong in Egypt, right? They didn't. That's what made it exile. They were in Egypt. They were really in Egypt. They had been absorbed into Egypt. Egypt had a hold on them. They—they—they they, they were connected to Egypt, and yet at the same time, they felt that this is not their place, and that's what makes. That's what makes it exile. So when people say exile from Egypt, they, they're talking about leaving. No, they, they, no, they were, they, they were, no, Egypt, they weren't exiled from Egypt. Egypt was the exile. They were redeemed from Egypt. Out of the exile. The Egyptian yeah, yeah. exile ended when we had the exodus from Egypt, coming out of Egypt. Okay, so what's the exile? Why is this, why, what's the exile? This soul is in a place that doesn't belong. Where is that place that it doesn't belong that the soul is in? Anyone want to venture a guess? What? The physical world. So the answer to that is yes and no. That was what you'll see in the texts. Very often they'll say the physical world or your body or something like that. Um, and it's misleading. In other words, it's technically right, but it's very misleading. Because if that was... If we were to take that at face value, that's really what it means, then what would it mean to redeem the soul from its exile? To die, to die right? Is that really what this is all about? <laughs> okay, so 
So while what you're saying is, is, is maybe the right wording, we have to understand what is it. It's not just the physical world per se. So for this, we have to understand there's a concept called life, um, which is a very weird concept. So I'm going to tell you a Hasidic story to illustrate the concept of life. Good? Okay. Before you should know, there are two kinds of Hasidic stories. There are the true stories which never happened, and there are the true stories which did happen. <laughs> by the way, for those of you who are interested in like, you know, mathematics, by that logic, how many kinds of stories are there total? True stories that happened, true stories that didn't happen. Infinite. No, there would be false stories which didn't happen, and false stories that did happen. Because <laughs> apparently happening and not happening is one issue, and being true and being false is a separate issue. But Hasidus only deals with things that are true, so the false stories just aren't part of Hasidic stories. Okay, what is a true story? <laughs> I know you don't get it, I've been explained. It is my job to educate you, not to just repeat things that you already know, right? It's not much of a job if I come into class and I say, okay, I'm going to say stuff that just reinforces what you already knew. It feels nice, but it's not teaching. Okay, we all know what it means that something happened, right? You know, I picked up this cup of coffee. And so I did, right? And that happened, right? right? Um, this morning, I fed my, my uh, pet python. Okay, that's something that didn't happen. I neither have a pet python, nor if I did, would I want to go anywhere near feeding it. Okay? <laughs> so this happened, didn't happen, right? That's what that is. What does it mean something is true or something is false? Reality versus not reality? Well. Fantasy? Okay. So truth... Truth means that there is something there that you should stay connected to. Something that you should hold on to. Something that is eternally relevant. And false means there isn't. It may have temporary relevance, but it doesn't have permanent relevance. So a Hasidic story, by definition, has to have a truth to it. What does it mean there's a truth to it? Eternally relevant. It has something about it that's eternally relevant. Did that mean the events described actually happened in the physical world? Maybe yes, and maybe no, and does it matter? Mm-mm. Generally not. Okay. On the other hand, there are plenty of things that happen in the physical world, but do they contain any eternal truths, anything that is eternally relevant? Is there any reason to always revisit that description of those events? No. Make sense? Mm-hmm. The difference? Okay. So now, the story goes like this. There were a bunch of soldiers in the Tsar's army. Which kind of story? This is the true story that did not happen. As far as I can tell, it didn't happen. Maybe it did, but I, I, I doubt it did. There were a bunch of soldiers in the Tsar's army. And um, they decided to sneak out of their barracks and go drinking in the local bar. And um, being Russians, strike one. And soldiers, strike two. Right? Um, and already breaking discipline, strike three. They did not exactly... Um, keep their liquor in check and they drink way too much so as they're trying to get back to the barracks before they get caught the next morning they all drop on the side of the road in a drunken stupor and the commanding officer discovers them has them all rounded up and they're assembled in the next morning and he gives a speech um, deploring their conduct and saying that really they should all deserve to be punished but because the czar is merciful right that's not true, actually, but we'll pretend, we'll pretend it is, right? It's propaganda anyway. Kings are at the propaganda of being merciful, right? It goes with the ideal of being a king. Therefore, you are 
going to get off with a warning. All of you except for one. And he points to one soldier and says, you are going to be shot. And his face says, me? Why am I going to be shot? We all went out. We all got drunk. We all passed out. None of us made it back on time. Like, <laughs> why me? And uh, the commanding officer says, well, all of the other soldiers, when they passed out, they were headed towards the barracks. You were headed back to the bar. Everyone else was trying to get back. You weren't even trying. That's why you deserve to die. Life is about what you're striving for. Not always what you do. We fail a lot of the time, right? But what... Yeah, what, what is, what, is, what, what, is, what it means to life is there's a, certain, there's a certain thing you're striving at, a certain way that, that you're, you're moving in order to thrive and flourish. Whether you succeed or not, it's a separate question. So, what are we striving for? To be a good person. To be a good person. That's very admirable. We already, you already have a track record of being an admirable person, right, in this class. Okay, what are most people striving for? To keep their basic needs. No, come on. We're like, a, we're, we're, we fortunately <laughs> live in society that's no. a way beyond that. No, they go to work to make money, and then they cut, they, it's, it's a cycle, just getting your... No, there's more than basic needs. Basic needs is... So, like, we need a good life as a decent person in society. To be happy. To be happy. To have a sense of, of personal well-being. Yeah. Purpose? Maybe, if you're a little more refined. Yeah. Um, some of us are striving to feel important. Some of us are striving to, striving to be stimulated, right? Some of us are striving. I mean, the RBO is striving for their basic needs, but usually those people with the basic needs are in, are in, je- in jeopardy, right? Someone who, who really can't put food on the table and stuff. And there are people like that. I'm not saying there aren't, but most people um, in the modern Western world are not actually... doing that. Maybe they're striving to keep up with some side, sense of societal expectation, right? Maybe they're striving to be a decent, normal human being. Maybe they're striving to have a life well lived so that when they die, right, peop- those who know them are able to look back on them in admiration because that, that kind of justifies their existence, right? There's lots of things people are striving for, yeah? Okay. Broadly, this is going to be called physical life. All of these things go into one broad category, including being a moral person as physical life. Before the soul, before the godly soul came into the body, what was it striving for? Connection with God? Nope. This is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? I had whatever it wanted. It didn't need to strive. Mm. It was with God. So you take a soul that was with God, and that soul... If it comes to a place and it's in that place, all it's doing is striving to connect to God, is it really an exile? Yeah. Why? Because it's, it's never going to get there fully. In How do you know? Well, we, who said? You did yesterday. We're never going to be that perfect. You were even like the best. But who says that's what connection to God is? There's no challenges where it comes from. There's only challenges against that here. No, but like, why is your assumption that, 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 that... Okay, fine. It's not about the achievement of it, but... Okay, right. So, for instance, is it true, is it true, without getting into the metaphysics of it, when you do a mitzvah, you're connected to God? Yeah. Okay. 
Can you do mitzvahs? Can, yes. Okay, so if the soul, if, if your soul were striving to connect to God, could you then do some mitzvahs? Would I? Yeah. It is. No, could no. you? Could you? Yes. Yeah. And then for the soul is striving after something, and not only striving after, but actually able to even, even, even attain what it's striving after. Yes or no? Could that happen? Yeah, okay. So there doesn't have to be exile in this world. That's not where the exile comes from. The exile is the fact that our lives are not heading back to the czar's barracks. Where are our lives? Heading back to the bar to get drunk. Meaning mm-hmm. our lives are about striving for things other than God. The, the exile of the soul is that the soul comes into a, into a person and that person's life is not about God. It right? becomes about something else. It becomes about something else. And therefore, even the mitzvahs aren't really a redemption from exile for the soul anymore. In other words, when is a mitzvah really redeeming the soul from its exile? You can do mitzvahs in the physical world. I said that the physical world per se is not the issue. I can do mitzvahs in the physical world to be connected to God. But that won't really redeem my soul from its exile if my whole life is not about connecting to God. Because the exile wasn't about the doing the mitzvah versus not doing the mitzvah. The exile is about the life that I'm living. If I'm living a life which is about making money, about having social status, about feeling comfort, about being proud of myself, about indulging the foods I like, whatever it is, right? Then it's that mode of living that is the exile of the soul. On the other hand, if my life is trying to get closer to God, and I even have the opportunity to actually bring that about in actuality by then go doing a mitzvah, my soul's not in exile, even though I'm physically alive. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not the existence of the soul in a physical body. That's the problem. It's the soul being trapped in a physical life. That's the problem. So you could have a person who's in exile and they do a lot of mitzvahs. They're very religious. They maybe never sinned once in their life. Their soul is still in exile. Conversely, by the way, you could have a person who stumbles into sin because it's hard. But in some sense, their soul, had, their soul breaks out of exile from time to time because they go through periods of time where they really are striving to connect to Hashem. And that's all that really matters to them. And so they, go, break, they break out of that exile, even though if we were to look, you know, sometimes they actually even go out and sin. Right? So we have to start thinking about this on a little deeper level. And obviously, a person who's totally out of their exile is never going to sin, right? That's, that, that's clear. But the fact that a person sometimes sins and sometimes doesn't, that doesn't really tell me whether they're in exile. In fact, the person never sins doesn't really tell me they're in exile. The question is, what's their life look like? You know, there, was a, there, were, there, there were two Hasidim who came to the fourth Chabad Rebbe. The fourth Chabad Rebbe, we don't have a picture, so it's the page on the middle left. Um, the Rebbe Marash. And um, the Rebbe Marash, these two Hasidim came for a private audience. And afterwards, he told his son, I had these two chassidim came to me for a private audience called Yechidus. One, I had a lot of nachas from. Do you know what nachas means? Love? No. Enjoyment. Nachas is one of those words that doesn't have like a good English translation. It means some combination of satisfaction, joy, pride, pleasure, um, and tranquility. Yeah, so, like, the thing that parents and grandparents want is nachas from their children. Okay, yeah. Okay, so I had one and a lot of nachas from one chassid, and I was very disappointed with the other. So the one that he was disappointed with was a, was a rabbi, and he got up very early and he studied, 
you know, because he had to have to study himself. And then he um, gave classes throughout the day. And at the, after the classes, he then had private consultations. And he's described as a very busy schedule. And he says, and it's like, I, I wake up at like 4.30 in the morning, and it's just, and there's the learning, and then there's the classes, and there's the private audiences, and there's the, the, the communal affairs. And it's only at 11 o'clock at night, I finally have the opportunity to sit down and have a cup of tea. So where was his life? The tea. The tea. The other one, the one he had a lot of nachas from, said, he's like, he said, he's coming to his dad, but I don't know what to do. I get up early in the morning because his business was he used to sell things to the non-Jewish farmers. I have to go up, get up early, go to the non-Jewish farmers, try to get them to buy something. Then they always buy, you know, before the, you know, and then they'll pay me later when they make money. So I have to go back and I have to, I have to, I have to get payment. And when I get payment, I have to have them in a good mood, which means I have to drink with them and they're not willing to drink unless their wife's there. So I'm drinking with them and their wife and trying to get them in a good mood so they actually pay me the money they owe. So I have to put food on the table and like I can't dive in in shul, so I need to like, you know, borrow one of their barns to dive in. And then uh, by the time I finish the whole thing, I come home and then I have to like, you know, sit with my children so that they, you know, go over what they learned in school, right? And, and, and by the time I do it, it's 11 o'clock at night and I sit down in front, of, uh, in front of a safe and I start to learn and I fall asleep. What am I supposed to do? The guy's whole day, not involved in any learning, any diving, right? But what's his life? His life is that, trying to figure out how to study with a little Hashem's Torah. So who's in exile? Truly, between the two. Okay. Now, the more you appreciate this, the more you there's gradations to this, there's levels to this, right? So the soul is in pain, not because I sinned. Sinning is symptomatic. The soul is in pain because instead of being with Hashem, it was with Hashem, and then it comes into the world. Now it has a life of trying to be with Hashem and then creating moments of being with Hashem and then trying to be with Hashem. And create, it's fine, okay? Like it's, there's a struggle, there's a challenge, but it's okay, it's good. It's not exile. You know, going, going, to a, going out to accomplish something is not necessarily an exile. But when the soul gets lost in a life that's not about being connected to Hashem, when it gets sucked into something else and it can't escape that and it feels trapped there, it feels like you're in a place that you, you're really in a place and you don't belong there, then the soul is in exile and that hurts. And what is the soul's way of dealing with that pain usually? What? No. The way the soul usually deals with that pain is it bottles it up and suppresses it. Because it is painful. Right? Human beings have a phenomenal ability to adjust. And so does the soul. Right? To acclimate. To become on the surface okay with something. Even though deep down you're not. What breaks the soul out of that cocoon? Comfort. The comfort of Hashem. Hashem comes and says, no, I'm here for you. I'm here with you, right? And his soul all of a sudden starts to feel the pain of exile. And then the healing can actually begin. Then, then maybe the soul actually starts to have the, the, the power and the energy to have him break through and change, change how the life of the person looks. Okay, by the way, this idea of exiles is true only of people like us who like, you know, live very animalistic lives, unfortunately. Or is this also true even of big tzaddikim? Even a big tzaddik, even someone whose life is supposedly totally devoted to Hashem, at the end of the day, 
how much awareness of Hashem can a human being possibly really have? After all, as in our, the human consciousness is limited, right? The human consciousness is limited by physical concepts, limited by a notion of time and space. And so what happens to the soul's sense of God, even for a tzaddik, it still feels like exile. It's a different kind of an exile. You can't expand your consciousness. No. Um. And so a tzaddik can very often, the same way we can, our souls can acclimate to the kind of exile we're in, their souls also acclimate to their exile. At the end of the day, the, 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 the idea of the 10 days of tshuva is about returning to Hashem, not because you've sinned, but because He is infinite and you are finite, and at some level you made peace with that. Some level, the fact that our souls entered a finite and limited existence, whether that limitation is just the animalistic way that most people operate, or even just the limitations that are more sublime, that a tzaddik has, the soul somehow makes peace with its own limits, with its own distance from Hashem. And the real pain of that separation is something the soul kind of hides away. And it comes along 10 days of tshuva, and Hashem says, no, 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 I'm, 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 just, I'm here. Like, let's, 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 I'm here for you. And then what happens? The soul has a sense of, of how, how desperate it is to really return to Hashem. And that's what tshuva is. Tshuva is returning to Hashem. So if you make the 10 days of tshuva about your sins, you've kind of missed the point, right? Does that mean sinning is like not a relevant factor? Of course it's a relevant factor, but it's not about sins. In other words, it wasn't the sin that made me separate from Hashem that now I have to do tshuva and fix the sin. The sinning just... Is a, is, a, is, a, is a negative, is a part of the cycle, but the real core of it is the separation that comes from being in a limited and ultimately animalistic life. So then what should I be working on in the 10 days of tshuva when I get more in touch with where my soul is holding the 10 days of tshuva? Should I be focusing on my sins and how to fix them? What should I be focusing on? Closeness. Right. How do I really be close to Hashem? What does it really mean to be close to Hashem? What does it mean to be close to Hashem in a way that I can actually move in that direction? Does that involve being more careful with Torah and mitzvahs and, and you know, observance? Sure, I mean, that's part of it, but that, you can't reduce it to that. Okay. Are you familiar with the custom of saying slichos? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's different customs for when to say slichos. What is the, does anyone know what the Chabad custom is for saying slichos? Slichos are the prayers we say asking God to forgive us for having sinned. It's traditionally said at this time of year. Does anyone know what the Chabad custom is for when they're said? The Saturday night before. Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah. Until? Rosh. Until Rosh Hashanah. Until before Rosh Hashanah. Right? You know the standard Ashkenazic custom. From the from the Saturday night before Shana up to Yom Kippur, why does Chabad not say Slichos during the ten days of Tshuva? Right, we move past. That's not the issue anymore. Like there is a kind of Tshuva where we messed up and we're sorry. Please forgive me, and that's a real thing. But that's not really what the ten days of Tshuva are about. Ten days of Tshuva are returning to Hashem because of the existential distance we have by being. In this life, again, not the body, just the physicality of it, because again, physicality can do mitzvahs, that's not a problem. But being in the, in the limited life the body allows. 
Now, for many of us, that ends up resulting in sinning, right? But it's not about the sinning, per se. It's about the existential distance. And so to make it about where, I, where I've gone wrong and what I've done wrong is diminishing what the 10 days of tshuva are about, which is the basis of that practice. Um, why not to say the slichas? Except on one of the days, because it's a fast day, you say slichas on every fast day, or whatever, so it's fast days. Even say it differently, you say like the fast day slichas. Okay, so now, what does it mean to be close to Hashem? Anyone know? I don't mean doing mitzvahs, right? I mean like in life, what does it mean to be close to Hashem? Because that's the group. We're trying to return to a life that is more about Him and more about connecting to Him. So what would that look like? Divine providence. Like seeing the divine providence. That's one of the things. One of the things is seeing the divine providence. So if you want to work on the 10 days of tshuva, you should work on trying to see Hashem's hand in everything. Okay, so now let's, let's spend some time talking about it. What does divine providence mean? And I, I, what I want to do is I want to be clear. I don't want to turn this into a, a class about philosophy. In other words, I want to get specifically to the, the relationship dim, dimension behind the, the idea of divine providence, not the idea like, you know, theologically, how does God run the world, and blah, blah, blah. Which is a, like an interesting topic to talk for right now. What does divine providence mean? God cares about every single thing God in my life. God cares about every single thing. Acknowledging okay. where things are coming from. What? Acknowledging where things are coming from. Like, you have a choice to say, oh, wow, it's like a beautiful day, or you have a choice to say, it's a beautiful day because Hashem is running the world. Okay, so the, the problem, like, that's not a bad thing to do. Like, you should definitely do that, but, it, but that's actually, that's not good enough. Like he, he is the cause of beautiful day. It's not beautiful day. It's not beautiful day. No, no, no. So we have to start with something else. The first thing is to start with this idea. Act, the word hashkacha, which usually translates providence, which is like a fancy word, just means he cares. Okay, so the first thing is starting is that hashkacha pratis means he cares, and pratis means about every detail. He really cares. He really, really cares. Okay. Now, there's a concept in in Hasidus, which is like a very rich concept. It's something that people often miss. This concept is the idea of something being clothed in something else, like the soul is clothed in the body. Have you ever heard this idea before? Okay, that your love of God is clothed in a mitzvah. Hashem is clothed in the Torah. Have you heard this, these kind of expressions before? What does that mean, that something is clothed in something else? What? Wrapped up. up. In what way? Like, like, like you're hiding it inside it? No, like, um, co- like comforting or securing. Because there's no way to express it except through. Right. It, in other words, what it means is that that something is being expressed through something else, and this is in contrast to it causing something else. Let me explain to you what I mean. Sometimes something is really important to me, and then I do something because something's really important to me. Like it's really important to me that I don't have that I have milk in my coffee especially in the morning. And so, if there's no milk, what do I do? What? You don't have your coffee? No. You could have stored by milk? Well, if it's, my, if, it's, if it's grocery store time, then I go to the grocery store and buy milk. If not, I send my kid to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I either go to the grocery store or I tell my child to do it, right? So the fact that having the milk is important to me causes me to say words or take actions, right? 
Does that mean that the sense of the importance of drinking my coffee with milk is clothed in those words and clothed in those actions? No. If you were to see me going to the store to get milk, would it look like I'm doing something that's really meaningful to me? No, it would just look like there's somebody walking in the grocery store, right? On the other hand, um, when I sent my kids to sleepaway camp um, and they were packing their things, could you tell in the way they were packing that they were really excited about what they were doing? I mean, you don't know, but you can take a guess, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because it wasn't like there was, this is important, and that caused them to take an action. The behavior actually became a mode of experiencing, of exuding that feeling, right? When you cry, is crying that you are sad and therefore that causes you to cry, or is the sadness come through the crying? Right? So the idea is, right, the, 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 I can use, by the way, I can use words and I cannot clothe any emotion in the words, and I can use words and I can clothe emotion in the words. Now, I'm going to do this artificially, so it's really acting, but, okay? okay? If a person were to get up and give a class and say something like, God loves every Jew. <laughs> every Jew is as precious to God as an only child. I mean, maybe they really, really believe that. Maybe they really feel that. But is it coming through the words? Mm-hmm. No, right? But if someone were to say that with emotion, right, it would come through, right? Mm-hmm. right? Bad actors cannot clothe the character in the behavior in the dialogue, right? Good actors clothe the character in the behavior in the dialogue, right? Really good actors do such a good job, you don't even realize that there's an actor acting mm-hmm. at all. So what does it mean that your, a person's love for Hashem is clothed in the mitzvah? Not, I love Hashem, therefore I'm going to do a mitzvah. The loving of Hashem and doing the mitzvah has become one experience. What would it mean that Hashem is clothed in the Torah? It means that Hashem thinks something's really important, so then He makes a Torah and gives it to us? Or that learning the Torah is itself contacting, touching Hashem in some very weird mystical which I'm not going to explain. What does it mean the soul is clothed in the body? The soul is telling the body what to do from on high? Or the soul is experiencing itself within the structure of the body? By the way, so if the body is quite limited in what it can experience in life, what does that do to the soul? It puts it into exile. Okay, so now let's go back to divine providence. Hashem cares, right? What is the relationship between Hashem caring and the sunny day? A beautiful day. Is he care and therefore he causes the day to be beautiful? He expresses no. his care through right. making the, the, the right. Day. His his caring is what actually is clothed in that. It enlivens that. In other words, when you encounter the sunny day, you're not encountering something he did because he cares. This is actually him caring. Caring. This is the mm-hmm. the, the energy of the caring coming through. Any day. Everything is actually like that. It's just sometimes the hashkacha is hidden and sometimes it's revealed. So I'll give you an example. Um, is that, is that, is that, uh, you ever had the experience where like, someone does a favor for you? But like, like really, they really did something for you. It feels really good, right? Mm-hmm. When was the last time someone did a favor for you? And here's a more interesting question, yeah? When someone does a favor for you and it's really heartfelt for you, is there, is there, is there, is there 
love and care for you causing them to do it, or is it clothed in it? It comes through. It comes through, right? Okay. So when was the last time someone did a favor for you? Father drove me to the airport. Nope. It's not the last time someone did a favor for you. No. No. Are you falling out of that chair? This chair? No. Why not? Because of gravity. <laughs> mm, no. I'm supporting myself in this chair. No. Shem We're going to be here a long time. What? Hashem cares. Hashem cares. How much does he care? Enough to keep on making A keep on to keep you from falling on the floor. Now the problem is, even though he's expressing his caring that way, we are unfortunately too self-absorbed to even, right? Because there's another thing, right? For instance, my children can be really enthusiastic about something, and so like their enjoyment, their passion is clothed in their behavior, right? It's really being expressed, and I can be oblivious to it because like I've got something else on my mind that's not even paying attention to them, right? Every single thing that happens to you in your life is hashkacha pratis, is divine providence. What does that mean? Hashem is showing he cares. Right. Not he's doing it because he cares. He's actually trying to show you that he cares. Sometimes it's easier for us to see it and sometimes it is harder for us to see it. But what if we actually started orienting our mind to actually try to relate to our life that way? Would we become more close to God? Imagine somebody is like constantly... Constantly, at every moment, not doing things because they care, actually trying to show you they're caring in everything they're doing. And you are too busy watching television to pay attention to it. It's like a, it's a problem, right? It's hard to be gone. But what happens if you start to realize that, and yeah, the television is very distracting, but you make a conscious effort to try and notice. Mm. Then you start to move closer to actually being on the same page with that person, right? So what does it mean to do tshuva? To see divine providence, right? To see divine providence, you're going to wait for miraculous things to occur. It's in the everyday. And not in the everyday God did it. Right? And by the way, sometimes it happens. Like sometimes you feel like, you feel like his care and concern is coming through. Right? Sometimes that happens. But, but that's just when you pick up on it. Really, that's happening. Every single second. In every single thing, in every little detail. Do you have to imagine that a little bit? So there's two ways of doing this. One way of doing it is where you kind of like imagine, try and like convince yourself that you see things that you don't really right. see. And, and the other way is that you actually ponder and reflect the reality of it so it changes your outlook. Um, so 